Because we understand Christmas, don't we? We understand Jesus Emmanuel coming to live with us, growing up as a child, his ministry on earth. We understand the cross, Jesus dying on our behalf on Good Friday, forever bridging the gap between us and God. And we get a good grasp of Easter Sunday, Jesus rising again, the irrepressible life of Christ available for all and thrown open. But if you, like me, grew up in a happy, clappy church, you probably don't know when Ascension Day is because we don't talk about the Ascension very much. It's not often even marked on our calendars. And we don't buy cards and we don't buy gifts. And sometimes our understanding of this encounter with Jesus is a bit lacking. And in my opinion, it's actually a pretty good thing that we don't give cards on Ascension Day. Uh, Because when it comes to depicting these moments in Christian art, things can get a bit messy. So I've got some examples here because I was looking at the possibilities for Ascension cards if we were going to start sending them to one another. So we have the first slide up. So here we have Jesus helpfully pointing in the direction he is travelling, looking very muscular despite us being told that he had no beauty, that we should desire him. He's also looking very white and not very Middle Eastern. And he's lacking any scars or evidence of having been to the cross at all. Let's have the next one up. So if we don't want that one on our ascension card, we could go with this one. Jesus again helpfully pointing, ascending surrounded by fat babies. (laughs) So this is another option, but I'm gonna put in a pitch now If we're going to start sending Ascension cards, I really, really want it to be the next one. Can we have the next one up? Okay, take a minute. I just, I can't get enough of this painting. If you haven't spotted his feet yet, please take another look. I just love that it's called Disappearing Feet, first of all. We could actually double it up as a Return of Jesus painting and just double it up as Appearing Feet, potentially. But um, I love it. If we're going to start sending Ascension cards, I'd really like it if that was on the front, please. Okay. But like I say, we can easily overlook the critical importance of Jesus' ascension to heaven and how this moment, this encounter with Jesus, is central to the good news of the gospel and how actually in itself it's like the catalyzing event for the outbreak of his presence rather than being about the absence of Jesus. It gives us great confidence in the continuing work of Jesus on our behalf. So let's read together. We're going to read today from Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up at the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking up at the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So this encounter with Jesus happens 40 days after Easter Sunday. And during that 40 days, Jesus has appeared to over 500 witnesses. And Luke says that he's given many convincing proofs that he was alive, that he was human, that he was real. And this is important because the disciples have witnessed the death of Jesus. And of course, their first instinct is that he's a ghost. And although we like to think of ourselves as 21st century educated people, the way we read the days between Jesus' resurrection and the days between his ascension, so those 40 days, can be in quite ghostly ways too. Because we can get to grips, can't we, with the Jesus who sits with prostitutes and who sits with beggars and who shows compassion in the ministry of Jesus. We can understand that Jesus. But if we're not careful, we can lack continuity between that Jesus and the Jesus who has ascended. And we can think of him as perhaps a bit too zen. And if we lack continuity there, we certainly lack continuity between this Jesus and the Jesus that now is seated in heavenly places. And what I want to convince you of today is that it is the same Jesus. He is the same Jesus. He is the same Jesus throughout. Jesus knew that the disciples would doubt, and thankfully, a thread of continuity remains. We know that after God raises Jesus from the dead, his body is slightly altered because it takes a little while for Mary to recognise him. She meets him on the path, she's gone to the tomb and she's walking back in despair and she bumps into someone she initially thinks is a gardener. But a gardener is a thoroughly physical being. I don't know why she thought she was meeting a gardener, but perhaps he had dirt underneath his fingernails Perhaps he looked like he'd been doing some hard work, but a gardener is a thoroughly human and not a ghostly figure. He, at this point, Jesus is an eating, drinking, needing the toilet human. And while the pallor of his face probably looks a little bit different to what it did a couple of days ago, he's probably got a bit more colour in his face, his scars from the cross remain. This resurrected, fully human, still scarred Jesus says to Thomas a week later, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. It's really me. Touch me. See, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus has had a spear driven into his side and nails driven through his hands. And this interaction with Thomas is, happens just a week after the resurrection. And it's only a few weeks after that that we see, have this moment described in Acts 1 where Jesus ascends to heaven. And presumably a still scarred Jesus ascends to heaven. I'm actually, I'm married to someone with a large scar on their side. And the first time, I think we were at the beach, we were going out, we were at the beach, and he managed to try to convince me it was a shark bite. And it actually does look a little bit like a shark bite. But some of you might know, Andrew was, Andrew was uh, hit by a car when he was 11, and he was stabbed by the windscreen wiper of the car. 
And so he had hours in surgery and his leg in traction for a long time um, and obviously a lot of stitches. And that scar remains to this day. It's really fascinating to me that clearly there is enough power exercised at the resurrection that God raises Jesus' body from the dead. He causes a heart that is not beating to start beating again. He causes a body that's not breathing to start breathing again. So why leave the scars? Why leave them? Did God fall short in that moment? Was there not enough power exercised to completely cover over the scars? The only thing I can think is that there is something more victorious and something more glorious about a wounded conqueror than there is about one who bears no wounds. There's something more perfect about a wounded healer than an unwounded one. It's why in the famous hymn, um, Crown Him With Many Crowns, it says, there's a line that says, rich wounds, yet visible above, in beauty, glorified. There's something glorious that God does in Jesus' body as he raises him, but allows scars of the cross to remain. The incarnation, which is just a fancy word for Jesus becoming so Jesus is fully human form. It doesn't stop in Luke 24, and it doesn't stop in Acts 1. And you know what? It hasn't stopped yet. A fully human, fully God member of the Trinity is fundamental to our faith today. And the only way really to understand why that's important is to think about, firstly, what's he doing there? What's Jesus doing there? And secondly, and why did he have to leave to do it? Let's go, first of all, what is Jesus doing there? What's Jesus doing right now? What's Jesus doing on Sunday morning? First of all, he's taken, he's literally walked humanity into the throne room of God, into the heavenly throne room of God. And in doing that, he's bridged the great divide for all time. Jesus is our great high priest. And sometimes we as charismatics, we can be quite anti-priests, can't we? We can be so concerned about not having any priests that we forget that we do need one key priest. And Jesus has walked in. He is our great high priest. The only reason that we can approach and commune and talk to God and walk with God in our daily lives is because there is one vital high priest who has walked humanity into the throne room of God. When Jesus ascended... He carried our humanness into the Holy of Holies, became the first human to ever be there. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right next to him. No space between them, and therefore no space between us and God. He's reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us completely holy in his sight. He's bridging, what's he doing? He's bridging the great divide between us and God, something we could never have done on our own. Secondly, he is praying for us. He's praying for us. In Hebrews 7.25, it says he is able to save completely or to the uttermost because he ever lives to intercede for us. Intercede is just a fancy word for pray. He ever lives to pray for us. Jesus is praying for you. What's he praying? He's praying that your faith would not fail. He's a high priest with a gaff in his side 
and holes in his hands. And I don't know if you can remember back to that first slide of the uh, index finger of Jesus pointing with his index finger as if to say, I'm going this way. But I just wonder sometimes, I wonder when we sin and we mess up, does he use that same index finger to say, still covered, still covered by my grace. That sin that you just, you really want to break and you just, God, you want, he's praying that your faith would not fail. And when you do fail, he points to his hand, points to his side, still stands. The sacrifice still stands. It's a permanent witness that he's borne your punishment He's taken it. He's borne it himself. So he's bridging the great divide. He's interceding for us. He's sympathising as well with our weakness. He's fully able to sympathise with our suffering. And he knows what it is. He's lived it to battle for faith in a place of extreme pressure and while enduring physical pain. One of the hardest things I think to do actually is to follow God when you're in serious physical pain. And Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Augustine, he calls Christ his neighbour. So familiar, isn't it? His neighbour. But that neighbourliness of Jesus, that similarity did not end in Acts 1. Our neighbour, the one who is fully like us in every way and yet somehow is completely without sin, is the same one who's praying for us. You know the certain people when they say, you're praying, they're praying for you and you think, oh, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be, they're praying for me. We forget. Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for us. He's also ruling and reigning in heavenly places. Even in emphasising the humanity of Jesus, we need to not neglect the fact he's filled with power and authority. He's sympathetic, but you know you have some sympathetic people go, there, there, it'll all be okay. And you think, what? Yeah, but you don't know and you can't fix it. He's sympathetic, but he's also filled with power on your behalf. In Revelation 1, we're given like picture language. John has this amazing vision to emphasise that this human is now wrapped in glory and authority. He's got eyes, we're told. He's got eyes, but they're eyes like blazing fire. He's got feet, but they're feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. He's got a voice, but his voice is like rushing water. He's got a face, but his face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. John sees him. He has this vision of Jesus. And he does exactly what you or I would do in that situation. He falls on his face as though dead. He's just in awe of this glorious Jesus. So he's ruling. He's reigning. He's working all things together for your good. Isn't that amazing? He's gone to prepare a place for you as well. He's preparing a place for us. Jesus' resurrection guarantees yours. And he goes to be with the Father as like a forerunner. He's going as the advance team for you to prepare a place for you. And isn't it amazing to think when you're welcomed into glory, it will be a human hand that takes yours. Here's just a beautiful thing now, I think. I love this. Jesus takes his scars, but you don't. In fact, he takes his scars so that you don't have to. He goes scarred so that you can leave your scars behind. You're offered new bodies and life in a new creation. And that song we were singing, There Is A Day, I love that song. I remember, I remember falling asleep in a tent listening to that song being sung when I was, um, years ago as a child at Bible Week. And um, I just think, gosh, that song just continues to give me such hope. 
He's preparing a place for us and there will be a day that we go to that place and be with him forever. All of that freedom and all of that newness of life was secured for you by your conquering and scarred healer. And what's more, he doesn't begrudge it. He doesn't hold it against you. It was his great pleasure. It was his great joy to do it on your behalf. How wonderful. And if we skip forward a few chapters into Acts 7, we see some of these things enacted. And we get this insight into what the throne room is really like as Stephen, who's like a very brave follower, filled with the Holy Spirit, is surrounded by a furious mob. And he's about to be murdered. And we're told this. We're told Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I found this really fascinating because in the rest of the New Testament, whenever it talks about the ascended Jesus, he's always sitting. It's Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Yet in this instant, Stephen's just about to, he's facing his moment of greatest suffering, greatest trial, and he sees Jesus standing Christ's posture, whether he's sitting or standing, he's always active. But why is he standing in this moment? And we don't know. Maybe it's maybe for Stephen, it's maybe it's he's about to welcome. Maybe he's standing as if when we welcome a guest. Perhaps he's standing to welcome Stephen in. Faithful servant, martyr, well done. You stood firm. Well done. Welcome him into heaven. Perhaps it's because he's prepared a place for him. Maybe he's standing to intercede for Jesus, intercede for Stephen like in a posture of prayer, a bit like in a prayer meeting when you know things get serious because we're going to stand up now. Maybe he's standing as a witness against the mob or a judge to deliver the final verdict. We've got to remember though, we've got to remember that Jesus knows what it's like to be surrounded by an angry mob. This is an experience he can fully sympathise with. He's been there. He's been surrounded by an angry mob. But Jesus in this moment is actively involved in sustaining Stephen's faith under fire. He knows this is Stephen's greatest moment of suffering and Jesus is actively involved. And he's also actively involved in sustaining your faith under fire. In your darkest night of the soul, Jesus stands. He is praying for you to sustain you in your deepest moments of deepest need. He's sympathetic, but he's also powerful and he's acting on your behalf. I love we see the Trinity at work here as well. Because you go, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, I see heaven open and the Son of Man. You can see the whole Trinity working together for the good of this follower of Jesus. The whole Trinity is at work in our faith and and work in helping us to stand firm in moments of real pressure. But he kind of asks, why did he have to leave? Why couldn't, wouldn't it be even better for Stephen if Jesus was actually there? If, Jesus, if Stephen could see Jesus on the outskirt of the mob, wouldn't it have been better for him to physically remain somehow in time or space to support us? And it's easy to interpret Acts 1 as actually Jesus's, as Jesus' swan song, his exit, the beginning of his absence. Even when we consider all he's doing on our behalf, it can be tempting, can't it? to write a postcard from our embattled staff room on, from a doctor's office and say, Jesus, wish you were here. Wish you were here. It can feel like that, can't it? I think, 
why did he have to leave? Why did he have to leave at all? And that's actually, that's how Mary Magdalene felt as well. Mary meets Jesus as, he walk, as she's walking away from the tomb. She realizes it's not a gardener. It's Jesus Emmanuel. It's the Jesus I know. And she turns to him and she cries out to him. And Jesus says something quite hard to her. He says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And it's interesting because we know that Jesus doesn't mind being touched. It's not that. Because just a week later, he's inviting Thomas to touch his side. It's not that he doesn't want to be touched. It's almost like he's saying to Mary Magdalene, he's saying, don't get stuck in this chapter. Don't get stuck here. There's more to come. There's better to come. This is like the final in our series of encounters with Jesus. And it's easy to sometimes get stuck in your Christian life and think, I've got to hold on here. But there is more to come. There are more encounters with Jesus to come. He's saying, don't get stuck in this chapter. There's better. There's better ahead. What if she had held on? What if Jesus hadn't ascended? What if he was still here? What if he was traveling around planet Earth, able to meet with people? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But how would he make his presence known? I guess he could take on, the most logistical way would be to take on the mother of all stadium tours. We have the next slide up. Some of you might know, Taylor Swift is, about, is embarking on the mother of all stadium tours at the moment. She's doing 131 concerts across five continents. And me and my naivety thought, I quite like to see Taylor Swift. I really like her folky stuff. And so, oh, I might get a ticket. Oh, very naive. Because she is doing 131 concerts across five continents. But you're going to have to work really hard to even get one of those tickets to a Taylor Swift concert. So how would it work if Jesus was still bound by time, space? Would he go from stadium to stadium? And maybe if you were really lucky, once, perhaps twice in your life, you might get to travel and see Jesus in person. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The only thing is, Jesus seems like the kind of person that might get distracted on the way to the stadium. And I'm not convinced he'd ever make it. I think there could be 80,000 people waiting at Anfield or Wembley, but Jesus got distracted on the way talking to a homeless person. Or he got into a conversation about faith with someone he saw crying on the pavement and said, let's just go and get a coffee, and he never made it. Acts 1 isn't about the absence of Jesus. It's about the radical outbreak of his presence. It enables us to know him in ways that we never could have known him if he'd stayed. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to apply the reality, the real gritty reality of the presence and the saving power of Jesus available to all. And you don't have to be the richest person and you don't have to be the poorest person. Jesus ascends to extend his presence, power and dominion over all things, not to diminish it. He ascends and within days the Holy Spirit comes and the disciples become witnesses to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, causing many people, including you, sitting here today, to come to know him in much deeper ways than if he'd ever stayed. Physical form. You 
are a receiver. You are a recipient of the mission of God initiated in Acts. And the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and it lifts your eyes and it enables you to know God in ways that you couldn't if it stayed. The ascension means that a scarred high priest knows you intimately and that he ever lives to intercede for you, to pray for you. And he's praying that your faith would not fail. And perhaps some days you wish he was praying something else. But he knows you better than you know yourself. And he's praying that you would place ever-increasing value on the only thing that's worthy of that, on himself. The ascension and Pentecost blows wide the mission of God and it opens up the possibility that anyone can come to know him. Holy Spirit comes to spotlight and to illuminate, almost like a roving spotlight in your life, in the dark parts of your life. You go, where is Jesus in this situation? The Holy Spirit comes like a roving spotlight to say, here he is. He's present in your darkest moments. He is present. It's hard sometimes worshipping an invisible to us God. It's a fascinating thing. If you're in all eternity, there is a very small slither of your life in which you cannot see a physical Jesus. In comparison to all of eternity, there's only a small sliver, which is this life on earth, when you cannot see a physical Jesus. But that is not your future. It says, why do you stand looking at the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go. We've got big encounters ahead of us, not just behind us. But today we need to know the reality of the presence, his reassurance, his comfort, his interest, his active involvement in our suffering. I wonder if the band could come back up. But I just want you to consider, if you're sitting there today, I just, there's two different groups of people that I just felt I want, I want to make a response today. So just listen up. If you're listening and you know that you need to have a first encounter with Jesus, you need to know the one that not only carries your scars, things that have happened to you, but also carries the scars of things you have done to other people. He takes all of that into the throne room and offers you forgiveness for the scars you have inflicted on the people around you as well. And the second group of people, I just want to respond, are if you know the stuff, you've got the head knowledge, you've been here a while, but you just really need to know the reality of his presence in your life in a fresh way and in a new way. And perhaps you need to know him present and active and standing as you suffer or in your work situation. And you need to know the gift of the Holy Spirit. We want to pray for you. The Holy Spirit would come and act like that roving spotlight and would shine a light on the face of Jesus and make his presence known in your life in fresh ways. Let's stand together. Ministry team, prayer response team, I wonder if you can make your way down just the area on my left as well. And just to say, if, if you've got your heart, if your heart's beating and you know, I need this Jesus who takes the scars that I've received, but also the scars I've given to others. I need to know him. I need to be all in. I need to make a first response and have a first encounter with this sort of God This sort of God, man, that's who you're approaching. 
I'd love it if you could come forward now and to be really brave and come over to this area. People would love to pray with you. And that second group of people, if you go, I just, I'm in this situation and I cannot feel the reality of the presence of Jesus. I know him to be true, but I need to feel him to be true. We'd love to pray with you. Would you be able to come forward now to to come and pray with us, to be brave, to meet with him? We've got big encounters with Jesus ahead. We've got a huge future with him ahead. We're going to worship together. Don't disengage at this point because this wounded healer isn't limping around the throne room. This is a conquering healer. He's ascended in glory. He's wrapped in majesty. He has all authority. He is ruling all things for your good. He's working all things together for good. He's been victorious on your behalf. We're going to worship him now. We're going to worship him, the King of glory, but also the King of grace. Both those things, King of glory, King of grace. We worship you, Jesus.